chance to sit down and come in so you can listen to John and Samantha read, but I don't have any announcements, so this would be a good time to have the spiritual gift of witty banter. John, do you have the <laughs> spiritual gift of witty of banter? Wi- <laughs> no? Okay, I guess we're that, out of luck. Uh, wasn't in my instructions, so we'll just stick with the scripture this morning. <laughs> yeah, good idea. That's what everybody says. Um, all right. Okay, so John and Samantha are going to read our text from Deuteronomy to today. So go ahead. Okay. So this morning we have a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30 through chapter 32, verse 47. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have, dwe- they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and a twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you? who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign gods was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Yesharum grew fat, and kicked you grew, and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. 
They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth at its increase, and sets the fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the, short, the sword shall bereave and indoors terror. For young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this, for they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and put, put ten thousand to flight? unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. And their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up, by my, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine. And recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees their power is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven as I swear, as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my, sh my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the, children of, or the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, and he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life, and by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are always in your presence. Thanks to the purifying power of Jesus' death, we are made fit to be your temple. We are your people and your dwelling place. 
we carry your name and enjoy the blessing of your presence. In the corporate collective sense, we are being built up in love, knitted together, and made more and more in your likeness. We are gathered here to proclaim that you, Jesus, are the King of Kings. No one else is higher. Nothing else comes close. You are the firstborn, the head of this church. By, through, and for you, all things were created. There have been many rebellions over the course of history, and even in our hearts today. Many times you have extended your hands, offering your good lordship, and many times you've been spurned. By your mercy, you have called us, you have changed us. We have repented, and you have restored. Father, we lift up Pastor Laveau and Haiti as that country is going through turmoil. I pray that the weak and the, the people who are afflicted are not able to get food, the orphans who are not able to get care that Pastor Laveau works with, you, you would miraculously intervene and provide for them, show your hand of justice in that country, caring for those who are on the margins. We lift up in prayer those who are ill and not able to be with us this morning. Grant them healing. Encourage them and bring them to our minds even this afternoon and this week so we can bring your encouragement. We lift up in prayer those who are here and burdened. In relationships, in parenting, our finances, our emotional, physical, spiritual health, Lord, we need help with them all. Grant us relief. In this company of saints, may we find sisters and brothers to share these burdens with. Even now, through the preaching and receiving of your word, let those burdens be cast in a different light, a light that sees you at work to bring all things under your rule, a light that sees our role in doing that work. Let us see the burdens not as problems to overcome, but as opportunities to show who our king is. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had a song get stuck in your head? How many of you have one stuck in your head right now? One of those songs that's like a viral audio worm that wiggles its way into your brain and just won't get out. Sometimes that can be a bad thing, right? Do you ever notice that it's the songs that seem to stick the easiest that are the annoying ones? Britney Spears had a lot of those, didn't she? They're the ones we'd rather forget. I just taught my kids uh, the song the other night, uh, The Song That Never Ends. You guys want me to sing a few bars? This is the song that never ends. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. You guys know that one? Some people? Yeah, you guys get it. Now you, now you all know who the mature and immature ones in the room are. I am the leader of the immature ones. They thought it was hilarious. My kids did. Sometimes this propensity to memorize through song is an amazing thing, though, isn't it? How many times have you struggled memorizing scripture, but then the second you hear it in song form, it clicks in? John and Charles Wesley, two of the most influential men in the early history of the American church, very influential in the Great Awakening, they understood this well. Charles wrote around 6,500 hymns. That's a lot. John Wesley was known for his prolific poetry. He didn't write many songs, but he wrote lots of poems. 
They knew that illiterate Americans that would never be able to read a Bible would be able to grasp Scripture and theology through song and prose. And it's true that song is a powerful tool in the fight of the Christian. A song saturated in good theology and the character of God is worth its weight in gold to the believer. Likewise, a song saturated in bad theology is terrible. It's a weapon against the church, and that's why we're careful about what we sing at this church. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is the basis of the text before us. This morning, we're looking at and unpacking the section of text known as the Song of Moses. Now, it's not as catchy as maybe something else you'd hear, right? That they would discern their latter end, right? How would one have chased the thousand? I might destroy them, right? That, you know, that's, that's really hard to put into a chorus. But the reality is, is this is a song that was sung. And in this song, what we're going to see today is we're going to see a God's eye view of redemptive history. We're going to see something from both the heavenly place as well as the earthly place. Moses had just finished giving two large sermons to his people, and here he is finishing off his third sermon. And while he would write a copy of this law for the generations that would follow after him, he finishes with a summary in the form of a song so that it can be uh, internalized by the people. And so Moses, as a concluding statement to his people, teaches, teaches them this song that shows a cosmic history of God's grace. It shows a cosmic history of God's grace. Moses' song, a cosmic history of God's grace. I call it cosmic because we will get to see it, as I said, from both an earthly and heavenly perspective. Now, the point of this song is multi-layered, multifaceted. First, we know that it was given in the form of a song or poetry uh, because this was well before um, popular methods of writing. Not everybody wrote, not everybody read, and so for people to remember communication, it would need to be done in a way that could be passed down orally and could be received audibly. Now, secondly, it was to be memorized by the people because this song, as I said, was to be a final summary. It was to be a summary of the narrative story of God's relationship with Israel. And this song was so important to the Hebrews uh, that they, some scholars believe that they took a copy of it and placed it in the Holy of Holies, and a copy of it would be read on a rotating six-day basis. They would read portions of it to finish it off every six days in the temple. Uh, this song was of core importance to Israel. So you'll see it used as a thread throughout Scripture. Now, really quick question. How many of you as Christians have ever heard this section of text emphasized as an important text in the Bible? Yeah. Okay, the guy that went to seminary and has 30 years of ministry experience and one other person because they used to have a really good teacher. That's about it, right? This song is not, not actually emphasized that often in the church, but what you'll see today, and I'm only hitting on a handful of, of times it's used, is that this song forms a foundation for the Hebrew people and the whole rest of the Old Testament as well as the New. Well, third, the point of this, and lastly, is that it, uh, it would act as a form of uh, formal legal judgment that would be used to judge Israel when they did not obey the law. It's kind of like when you tell your children expectations and then they don't fulfill those expectations, you have a discussion with them about, did I not make myself clear about the expectations of you cleaning your room, right? It's that kind of thing. Literary scholars agree that the majority of this poem is in the form of what's called a riv, uh, a covenant lawsuit against the people of Israel. And as we'll see, it will clearly speak to the fact that God had given his people everything, and yet their response, much like ours often is, was the opposite of faithfulness. 
And so while this song may seem ancient and a bit irrelevant to us today, we will find that it should be just as important to us as it was to the Hebrews because it accurately provides for us a statement of the basic gospel truth. I want you guys to walk out of here today understanding that the song of Moses is actually a statement of gospel truth. Now, we also need to be aware of its structure because otherwise we read it and we get lost in it in our American Western mindset. In verses 1 through 3 there, if you have your Bible open, in verses 1 through 3, you have the introduction in typical poetic format. The song was one written in ancient Near East prose, and that's why it's hard for us to grasp. One of the things you'll see is that rather than sound rhyming that we use in Western culture, in English, you'll see something that is identified as thought rhyming. Thought rhyming. This is when you have two parallel or contrasting statements like you see in these verses. Look at verse 1 there. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Heaven and earth. A parallel thought rhyming goes on there. And this is part of what made it easy to remember for the Hebrews. This is part of the prose. Now, this is important for two reasons. The first is, is that when you're reading the Bible, always read in... And the most important thing you're going to get to study Scripture is context, right? It's like real estate, location, location, location. In the Bible, it's always context, context, context. One of the contexts you look at is the genre. We switched from this law-based view to now we're in poetry, and so we have to adjust our minds. We can't read it in the same way. Realize that the language that's used is poetic, and therefore it may seem exaggerated or romantic. And so we need to realize that we we need to read it within this context of genre. It's not to be read literally. Think about a song. Uh, I'm not a songwriter, so pardon me for a second. This is going to sound dumb. But think about a song that would say something along the lines of, my heart beats out of my chest when I see you, right? Very romantic, right? And this is why I'm not a songwriter, just FYI, okay? If that were literal, it would be grotesque and part of a horror film, wouldn't it? (laughs) Ah, right? That's not a very good poem, is it? I don't know how you'd make an MTV video of that unless it was like a really gross band, right? But figuratively, as poetry or song, we automatically know it makes sense. So we need to read poetry in that way in the Bible. Is God a literal rock? Is he your pet rock? No, he's not. He's God, but he's like a rock in many ways, okay? And we'll see that. Now, secondly, knowing this about the poetry will help us when we come to some translation issues that are very, very important. So hold on to that idea. Uh, We're going to hit on that towards the end of, of the sermon. Remember this point, that because it's poetry, we can understand the translation better, and I'll share that with you. Well, after verses 1 through 3, you have a kind of summary or thesis statement in verses 4 through 6 in which it summarizes the entire song. And it's from this section that we will form our main points today, and the rest of the song will be broken down into these three sections, okay? So you've got verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, three separate sections that then speak to how the breakdown of the rest of the poem um, is, is spoken and is, is broken up. Now you can see why I wanted to read through the whole thing at once. I didn't want to break it up because then you'd miss some of the points. The first thing that we're going to see this morning is this. Just as verse 4 gives us a, a, a brief summary statement, we're then going to see through the first portion of the text that God has perfectly loved his chosen people in faithfulness, justice, and righteousness. God has perfectly loved his chosen people in faithfulness, justice, and righteousness. In verses 7 through 14, we see this stated boldly and clearly. God's work is perfect, and all his ways are just 
and faithful. Amen? Amen. He has always acted rightly and truly for his people. Our God is perfect and upright. And not perfect in that he, uh, as we think about, never making mistakes. Well, that is true. He's never made a mistake. But more so, the meaning is that he's holy. He's not missing anything. He's completely whole and good and right. And it's interesting that Moses does not start at the point of the Exodus. In verse 7, he reaches back farther into antiquity, beyond the Exodus. And even more interesting is that he gives us a behind-the-scenes peek at what occurred. He removes the veil of the earthly level and shows us the divine level in the court of the Lord, the king of the universe himself. Let's read verses 7 through 9 again there. It says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, meaning Israel, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, this is a massive text that pulls back the curtain on that relationship between the earthly and the divine in a big way. And from it, we also receive a statement on the relationship between God and Israel. And this is so important, and the translation majorly matters here, guys. This is not me just nerding out on the translation. The translation massively makes, uh, is important in what is broken down here in the ESV. Now, there are two clues, clues here that give us an idea of what is being discussed. The first is in verse 7, where it speaks of many generations. You see that there in verse 7? Many generations. Consider the years of many generations. The second is the statement that God divided mankind. Now, both of these point back in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to, <clears throat> to Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Why don't you go ahead and go there with me? Genesis 10 and 11. Okay, I'm going to have you turn there, and we'll wait just a second. You guys can see by the headings, you can start to pick up where we are in the story. And many of you know this story, even if you haven't been in church much, uh, even if you haven't studied your Bible much, you know the story of uh, the flood. And so in Genesis 10 and 11, we've got this story of the Tower of Babel there in 11. Now, the backstory here is that the Bible provides a backdrop of some form of divine warfare that occurred in antiquity past. There was a rebellion of some sort. We don't have a ton of information on it, but there was a rebellion of some sort in the court of God. And by court, I mean like a kingly court. And there was an adversary that emerged. And this is where the Hebrew name Ha-Satan comes from. We say it as Satan. It's literally a Hebrew word that means the adversary. It is not a proper name. It is the adversary. And this adversary was cast down to earth. And so God placed image bearers Humans who would reflect God and act as vice-regents or sub-kings that would conquer and subdue the earth in the name of God. We've gone over this a few times in Genesis, but just as a reminder, look at what it says in Genesis 1, 27 through 28 there on the board. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, as I've said before, this is not directions on how to go hunting and fishing, right? What this is, is a warfare statement. 
The word subdue in the Hebrew, as I've taught you in the past, is the word kabosh. Everybody say kabosh. And it literally means what it means in English, to kabosh, right? It means warfare. It means to conquer. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament as a conquering warfare word. These humans, the image bearers of God, were to bring the earth back under the reign of the king of the universe, the Lord himself, Yahweh. That was their purpose. And from the garden until the time of Noah, they threw off this idea, and mankind's sin grew so out of control and rebellion towards God that God knew he needed to act, or else all humanity would be lost with no chance of redemption. And so he saved one family, the family of Noah, to restart the mission of restoration of God's creation. But again, the innate original sin of mankind was so ruthless, so ruthless in rebellion that it was not many generations until again, Mankind was at the pinnacle of rebellion and idolatry. It can't get much worse than in chapter 6. And so chapter 10 speaks of those generations and brings us through the flood into the story of the Tower of Babel after the flood uh, in which Noah's family survived. Take a look there at uh, Genesis 11. You'll see that it comes at the end of a list of all the generations. Remember, we talked about generations there in, in uh, Deuteronomy 32. And now we're going to get to the place where it talks about the breaking up and dispersal of mankind. It says in verse 1 of Genesis 11, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, we read this and we go, oh, it's not too bad. Like, yeah, they're just trying to make a mark, right? It's, you know, they're trying to get their Instagram, Instagram likes up, you know? They're trying to make a name for themselves. That's not what's going on here. Well, the Lord says, uh, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was learning this in, in felt format back in the day, I just thought that God was angry that they became architectural and construction-based. It never made sense to me about why he was angry. But when you realize what's going on here is that they're trying to take heaven by force. The tower that is being spoken of here is an ancient ziggurat. Everybody say ziggurat. It's a fun word, isn't it? Ziggurat. And these towers were built after the model of the Tower of Babel, and they were intended as a bridge between the earthly and the divine. The intention was that at the top of these ziggurats was a bedchamber in which the pagan deities could come and rest as they came to earth. It was the, the way of interaction. Now, here's a picture of the base of one that's still there today, centered in the city of Ur, where Abraham was called out of. This is the ziggurat of Ur-Namu, okay? Now, you can still go and walk up these steps today. And the act of building this tower that reaches to the heavens, of making a name for themselves, was that they wanted to make their name greater than the name of Yahweh, the name of God. Man, our society is just like that, isn't it? Even within the church, in this modern day of celebrity pastors, 
and, and prophets, present-day prophets. We want to make our name great and minimize the name of the Lord. What was going on here was a horrifically idolatrous and rebellious action. The people who refused to bow down to the sovereignty and rule of the Lord of hosts, the creator God, they were trying to reach heaven on their own merit, by their own works. It was as if, as if they were taking heaven by force, as I said, in spite of God's just decree that their sin had separated them from him. Now, this act of blatant defiance was only the beginning of their depravity and their worship of idolatrous, demonic beings, false gods that mankind invented, things that gave us identity and comfort and security. So God dispersed them into different nations with different language in a merciful act to keep us from harming ourselves even further and removing any chance of redemption. And what Deuteronomy gives us is a clue that tells us the qualifier by which God distributed the people. He didn't just randomly distribute them. It was according, as Deuteronomy 32 says, to the number of the sons of God. Now, what does that mean, the number of the sons of God? Now, we need to pause here because some of your Bibles, such as the King James, the NIV, the New King James, and a number of others, will have it phrased as the number of the sons of Israel. Now, there are multiple problems with that reading. And I want to take a second, I can't go into the fullness of it, but I want to take a second to break it down because the false reading of the number of the sons of Israel destroys the heart of the message of chapter 32 and sets us up with bad theology. When translators go to translate the Bible into English, what they do is they go, go to the oldest exist, existing manuscripts of the original languages to do so. Now, you may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have heard of that? Okay. Any of you have heard of the Septuagint? Anybody heard of that? Okay. How about the Masoretic Text? Okay, so you've heard of some of these. These are the names for various old, existent manuscripts. And most of the time, in the vast majority of Scripture, and in almost all of the most important passages, these manuscripts agree on wording, which is one of the reasons, dear Christians, that we have such confidence that the word we hold in our hands is the original and inerrant word of God. It hasn't been changed. When people throw that out, they have no clue how it's been handed down. But in some places... In a few places, there is disagreement within these manuscripts. And this is one of those places. And it gives us a history lesson on what might have happened. In some of the oldest manuscripts, it reads as the ESV does, sons of God, lemispar benai Elohim. Okay, that's the Hebrew. In later manuscripts, it reads sons of Israel, lemispar benai Yisrael. That's a big difference, Yisrael or Elohim. Now, another wooden way to translate as it is in the ESV is, the number of divine beings. Now, really quickly, we get nervous, don't we? As good monotheists, we're like, wait a minute, hold on a second. What are you talking about, Hans? Okay, Hans has lost it. We're about to leave because he's a polytheist now. No, that's not what's going to happen. So just stick tight. The picture painted here is that God had created angelic, partially divine beings to which he had assigned administrative functions to watch over and rule over certain portions of the earth. Now, the pieces of information we are given is that these beings were rebellious and demonic in that they were rebellious against God's ultimate rule, but they were still under his power. They were rebellious and yet under his power. 
And so what happened when God dispersed the nations is he gave them over to their already idolatrous desires and gave them over to these idols, these false gods, so that they would worship these false gods because they were already doing it. Now, if you're lost, let's just jump to some other scripture, and it'll start to help make sense of other scripture that you may have struggled with. Job chapter 1 and 2, for example, describes the, the same idea that I'm talking about, these divine beings presenting themselves before the Lord. Uh, let's take a look here at Job 1, 6 through 7. It says there that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, Hasatan, also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan's a bit of a free agent. He's not an administrator over any one place. He is the, the prince of this world. And so in essence, you have this hierarchy of demonic beings that are over the nations of this world. Now, our brain starts to go haywire here, right? This is not something that is typically like obvious every Sunday morning to most Christians. And it's hard to see it in Scripture, but once you see it, it's everywhere. Take a look at Psalm uh, 29.1. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Psalm 97.7 says, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Wait a minute, hold on a second. There's, there's that polytheism thing again. Well, notice it's not capitalized. The problem is, is that we've wrongly put a proper name of God onto the God Yahweh. And so I know all the time when people have more of a deistic view, because I'll say to them, do you know Jesus Christ? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, me and God, we're like this. In essence, what they're saying in English is, yeah, me and a deity, we're like this. No, do, do you know the God? Yeah, 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 me and that deity, right? Yeah, we're, we're tight. You know, I'm a good person. No, do you know Yahweh who sent his son Yeshua by the power of his Holy Spirit to come and save you from your sins? Yeah, me and God, we're like this. Me and that deity. You see how most Americans might claim Christianity, but they're actually just deists? They don't know the God of the Bible. And so it's important that we understand this, that while we are monotheists and God is above all other beings, there is only one creator God. He has created and allowed these other angelic demonic beings to administer this world that has been given over to sin. This is very hard for us to understand. In these psalms, it calls these beings Elohim, which is translated in a clunky way into our English word gods. But remember that this simply means divine beings, not the ultimate God or the highest divine authority. If I've confused you, let me help you with a commentator named Jeffrey Tige who puts it this way. When God organized the government of the world, he established two tiers. At the top, he himself, God of gods and Lord of lords, who reserved Israel for himself to govern them personally. And below him, 70 angelic divine beings, they know this 70 from the table of generations, to whom he allotted the other peoples. The conception is like that of a king or emperor governing the capital or heartland of his realm personally and assigning the provinces to subordinates. Now, this idea he's talking about here, the God of gods, is literally from Deuteronomy. It says in Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is God, capital G, of gods, lowercase g, and Lord of lords. 
the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And so the reality is, is that this would not say this. He would not be called the God, capital G, of God's, lowercase g, if the Bible weren't trying to tell us this idea. This is not just Lord of earthly lords or king of earthly kings, but he is the God above all other divine beings that he has created and handed administration to. Another example is in the book of Daniel, four different times in the book of Daniel. These divine governors, or they're called princes, are mentioned. Look at this example of an angelic being describing to Daniel Daniel, a fight within the heavenly realm, within the spiritual realm. And so he's not talking about earthly princes here. This angel says to Daniel, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return <clears throat> excuse me, to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against, against these except Michael, your prince. See, Michael was assigned to Jacob, to Israel. And so this idea of divine beings is constant throughout Scripture. And in the ancient Near East mind, this is not a big deal. You could still very much be a monotheist with a singular God and recognize that there was this council of divine beings underneath him. For us as monotheists in the West, we get really nervous. A good friend of mine up in Portland tried to teach this, and he got blasted because he's a megachurch pastor. He got blasted all over national radio for being a polytheist. My, my mentor, Gary Brashears, uh, w- was blasted because he's a mentor of this pastor as well, right? This is what Scripture says. It's not being made up. And this divine counsel is an idea foreign to us, but it is not foreign to the Bible itself. Take, for example, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20. Paul says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul understood this idea that the Gentile nations were given over to divine angelic administrators that became the backing demonic forces behind false gods and deities. So this idea of demons with pitchforks and horns that come around and, you know, trying to afflict you with backache, right? That is not what the Bible says. They, they got bigger fish to fry. They got people like, you know, certain politicians, right? They run nations through politicians, So why does it say sons of Israel in later manuscripts? Well, many textual criticism experts think that what happened was that later scribes were worried that this idea of a divine council subservient to the one true God would be misconstrued and Israel would begin worshiping the lower divine beings. And with good cause, as Israel had a terrible habit of doing just that. And so in an effort to remove this temptation or misunderstanding, those scribes may have made the executive decision to change this verse. Now, why, you might ask, are we geeking out on this and spending so much time on this one portion of the song? We're going to be here like five hours if I keep going in this this direction. Well, first, it helps us gain a massive insight into the worldview of the original authors and peek behind the earthly veil to help us understand the heavenly realm. But secondly, it helps us understand the massive grace of God and the unique and special relationship between him and his covenant people. You see, if you've zoned out, tune in real quick. What this says is that out of all the nations on earth, God took a special interest 
in Abraham and his offspring. This verse in Deuteronomy 32 tells us how God elected his people and how he chose his people by his grace. He elected them for himself as his allotted portion. Does this sound familiar, New Testament saints? He acted as both their mother, giving birth to them, as it says in Deuteronomy 32, 18, and comforting them, as it says in verse 11. And he acted as a father does towards his children. In the midst of the wilderness, God picked them up, guided them, protected them, and provided for them when no foreign God was with them. God was their rock. In the life of Israel, he was massive, powerful, unmoving, foundational. He was their refuge and strength. Now do you see why it calls him the rock? He rescued them not only from the evil kingdom of Egypt that enslaved them physically, but he'd rescued them from being enslaved in a heavenly form by these demonic beings made and made them his own. As Christians, we know this same love. God chose us, the people of his church, from among the nations to be his own peculiar people. Take a look, for example, at the letter of, uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Go to the book of Ephesians with me. Ephesians 1. This letter to the church at Ephesus says that we were chosen in him from before the foundation of the earth to be his portion. Take a look there at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Interesting. Heavenly places. The divine realm. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Do you think maybe the scholar, Pharisee, Paul, used to be Saul? Had in mind Deuteronomy 32 here as he wrote this? Possibly. And we, just like the Gentile, Gentile nations given over to pagan worship, were formerly enslaved to these gods that were no gods. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the adversary, Hasatan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, meaning the rest of humanity, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Man, Deuteronomy 32 could speak this to Abraham. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, Abram. You were standing on the ziggurat in Ur, worshiping pagan gods, enslaved to the prince of the power of Ur. And I reached in and saved you by my grace, by my mercy, not any work you have done, and pulled you out and called you to myself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Deuteronomy 32 is gospel. It's gospel. Dear church, it is grace because God could have left us to our sinful enslavement to the demonic gods of this world. And yet, like the children of Abraham, he saved us from ourselves to make us his own. 
And because of this, your identity is not what you used to do, not what you crave to do, not what you are falling on your knees to do in your flesh. Your identity is now as a child of the Most High King. You are a child of Father God. That is your identity. Unfortunately, even in the midst of that grace, as we see in Deuteronomy 32, his people chose to respond in rebellion and perversion rather than holy reverence. Our next point is that his people responded in corruption, perversion, scoffing, and idolatry. The response of his people was not to follow in his way of uprightness, in his way of righteousness and justice. In fact, it was just the opposite. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32 and you'll see what I mean. Moses sarcastically calls them by the name Yeshurun in verse 15. It's a name that means in the Hebrew to make straight or be upright. It means upright or law-keeping. And this was supposed to be their nickname as, a, as the apple of his eye. But by their rebellion towards idolatry, they forsook the God that chose them, redeemed them, and provided for them. Look at verse 17, what it says there. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Rather than worshiping the God who had done everything for them, they turned to these false deities that were the demonic governors of the nations. Interesting how even in 2019, nationalism is the big thing of discussion. Nation competing against nation, warring bringing unrighteousness and injustice. Every nation believing that they're the one that's right. Look at verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Moses speaks as if God, he's God and again uses this intense sarcasm. They have made me jealous with no God. Lo el. And I will make them jealous with no people, lo am, in the Hebrew. They want no God, and I'll bring on no people, meaning the Gentiles. And so begins the foreshadowing here of the story of Israel, that God would bring Gentile nations to force Israel into exile, that they would be the sword that God would bring against Israel to discipline them for their idolatry. Verses 23 through 26 speak of the righteous indignation of God and his desire to remove Israel from existence because their rebellion was so strong. But he held back, realizing that he would not want that to be misconstrued by the Gentile nations, that they or their gods were victorious. And so he held back. And so God assures in verses 28 through 33 that he will not allow the Gentile nations to swallow up his people Israel completely. There would always be a remnant. In fact, verses 34 through 38 give hope to Israel that even though they are basically assured that this rebellion, idolatry, and exile will occur, God will not leave them in the hands of their enemies. Look at verse 36 there. Speaking of how he will respond to these Gentile nations that would exile his people. He says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants, verse 36, when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. 
Then he will say, where are their gods? Meaning those Gentile nations. The rock in which they took refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? God will not leave them in the hands of their enemies. He will look with derision on these Gentile pagans and will ask them to get their pagan gods to protect them against his wrath. How well will that go for them? The fact is that they never will. These false gods never will because they have been given freedom to roam and rule for a time, but they are ultimately under the authority of the God of gods and Lord of lords. These demons are paper tigers unable to cause lasting damage to any of the Lord's anointed children. Dear church, take heart. The nations rage. The economy goes up and down. Puny kings and rulers of this earth think that they have power and authority. And while they spasm and freak out, and cause chaos. God sits in the heavens and laughs. He laughs at their attempts to take authority. Do not fear the economy. Do not fear impeachment. Do not fear other countries. We worship the God of gods and the King of kings. Amen? Amen. Don't read the news and think, woe is us. What shall we do? Bend your knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what you do. And recognize that he's in control. And nations will go up and nations will come down, including our own. But he sits on his throne forever. Amen? Amen. He may allow chaos for a time, but he will ultimately bring justice and salvation that will put an end to all this stupid nonsense. Third point is just that. God is the all-powerful king and rock of salvation who will bring justice. The God we serve, the God of the Bible, is the all-powerful king and rock of salvation who will bring justice. Make no mistake about it, what we have looked at today is not some ancient Near East pantheon of gods. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not just one God among many. He is the God above all other divine beings. He is the Lord above all other authorities. He is the only creator God, the only all-powerful cosmic king and rock of salvation. Any confusion by the reader is cleared up here in verses 39 through 42. It says, There is no God besides Yahweh. All authority is in his hands. He is the final judge. Be careful to not confuse this idiom of I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, as a statement of causation that God is the one that inflicts the oppressed, that God is the cause of all harm or hurt. This is a statement that he is the final authority and judge of all that happens within the cosmos. And yet, at the same time, I wonder if the writer of Isaiah 53 thought of this verse. Because God is the one that wounds and yet heals. Because God took on incarnate form and took on the woundings of the cross so that you and I would be healed. He was the one that had his back beaten, had his hands and feet pierced, had a crown of thorns put on his head. He was wounded so that your iniquities and mine would be forgiven and we would be ultimately eternally healed. He is the God that wounds and heals but yet he's willing to do it to himself so that you and I might live. And this position 
in this position as the final authority, the king of the cosmos and the rock of salvation, God will bring justice in two ways that are outlined in verse 43. First, he will bring punitive judgment against those who hate him. Israel had been elected, redeemed, and gifted a land of promise, and yet they had slowly but surely turned to idols to provide for them and to protect them, to give them identity. They turned to idols to bring them comfort and security and salvation. They turned to idols that are nicknamed 401k and vacation, social media, success, prosperity. And those who do turn to worthless gods, which is anything other than the God of the Bible, it's the things we turn to for safety and security, for that identity, things like money, sexuality, security, success, popularity, prosperity, ease things that we all fall into often, they are those who hate God. And we have to recognize when we suit those idols up and pick them up and put them in our lives, we are stating our hatred towards God. Upon those who consistently and ongoingly hate him, he will take vengeance. He will bring wrath and punishment that is deserved by any, including me, who do not attribute to him the authority and honor that only he deserves as the God of gods and the King of kings. But perhaps more important is the restorative justice that's noted there in verse 43. That he will bring towards those who are his a huge amount of peace and justice. He will truly act as the rock of salvation for those that are his. And this idea is stretched throughout Scripture. You see, it would be Jesus, the Christ, that would come. He would become the incarnate rock of salvation among mankind. Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary took upon himself the wrath that mankind deserves as enemies of God. And in raising three days later, Jesus proved that he was the final authority over life and death, and no one, not even the adversary, could hold him. After 40 days, he poured out his spirit upon his church and ascended to the right hand of the Father, making him the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And it was this hope fulfilled in Christ that was the motivation for the Apostle Paul to take the message of Christ to the Gentile nations. He knew that in doing so, it would rouse some of his own people, Israel, to believe, to believe in the truth of who God was. Turn with me to the book of Romans, and you'll see what I'm talking about. In the New Testament, go to the book of Romans. And start there in chapter 15. In verse 10 here, he's going to quote, Paul is going to quote from Deuteronomy 32, our section today. Deuteronomy 32, specifically verse 43. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And in this background was most likely the context, this background we've discussed today is most likely the context that Paul had in mind when he wrote something similar in Romans 11. Turn back there with me, just a page or so back. In Romans 11, starting in verse 11, it says this, so I ask, did they, the Jews, the uh, nation of Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. This is exactly what Deuteronomy 32 is speaking. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. You know that the Pharisee, the scholar, Paul, had Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 32 in mind as he spoke these words. Look at uh, verse um, uh, 25 there. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Gentiles, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's like we're reading the second half of Deuteronomy 32. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul saw that in Christ, through his death, resurrection, and pouring out of his spirit upon all nations, Israel might finally receive their just restoration through him as Messiah that the nation of Israel would be preserved even if individual Jews were not. For Jew and Gentile alike, Jesus has become the rock of our salvation. And through him, God is bringing forth the justice promised for his people. God is the all-powerful king and rock of salvation who has, by his incarnate work through his son, Jesus Christ, inaugurated justice in the kingdom to come. And perhaps we, like Israel, should take heed of this song of Moses as it beautifully and poetically paints the picture of the cosmic history and the foreshadowing of the future of God's grace. Dear church, this masterful work of art written by Moses so perfectly captures God's cosmic work of grace that it will actually be one we sing for all eternity. Did you know that? In his vision of the people of God worshiping in his throne room eternally, the Apostle John says this in Revelation 15:2. If you want to know the hymn book of heaven, here's what it is. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with its harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb, comparing it to the song of Jesus, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the almighty just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What a wonderful summation of Deuteronomy 32. This song, dear brothers and sisters, so perfectly captures God's cosmic work of grace that we will be singing it as praise to our King. So we've now traced the importance of this song through much of Scripture. 
It was the basis of psalmist songs, as I'll show you in a second. It shows at least some of the motivation behind Paul's mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And it offers amazing proof of amazing grace and justice of God as king of the nations. But now you might be asking the question, as good students of the Bible, so what, Hans? Wonderful theology lesson. We've just spent a lot of time figuring out theology. Well, that is in and of itself important, but I think the so what question is good. And so I want to respond with one last question for you. Upon what rock have you established your current life and eternal future? Upon what rock have you established your current life and eternal future? You see, I'm amazing at saying that I base my life upon Jesus, but it's amazing whenever stress hits, I always try to take control myself. You ever have that happen in your life? Last night we had an accident. One of my sons, at the, right before bedtime, he was playing around with his brother and he turned really quickly and ran into a four-by-four four post and cracked his head open. And I ran downstairs to see blood everywhere and I jumped down on the ground and I threw him on the ground to keep his head down. Didn't throw him. I brought him down on the ground and I applied pressure and it was the last thing in my mind to pray. And I thought to myself, amazing how quickly I forget that I'm based and ground upon the rock of ages. I thought about getting EMTs there. I thought about covering the wound. I'm yelling at people to do things, my son and my wife. And I didn't pray until long after he'd gotten in the car to go to the emergency room. Upon what rock do you establish your current life and eternal future? How often do we as Americans go, oh, I trust Jesus to provide for me. How's my 401k doing? Let me, hold on. How are my stocks and my portfolios? Hmm. I guess God is providing for me. My stocks are doing well today. Good job, God, right? How often do we base our relationships upon what we can do to make the other person like us as opposed to going to the rock of salvation. You see, we can say to all the non-believers, have you bowed the knee to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings? But we first, as Christians, have to ask ourselves the same question. Not just in the greatest of things, in eternal matters, but in the smallest of things, in the day-to-day. -day. Is God the first person we go to to figure out what our day needs to look like, or do we go to our daily planner? Dear Christian, have you bowed the knee to the King of kings and the God of gods and the Lord of lords? Have you not only cried out for Christ to save you from hell, but have you also willingly asked to be submitted to his sovereignty and authority in every moment of every day of your life? It's been interesting. This term, I'm in a class, one of my last classes at seminary regarding counseling addictions. And one of our first lessons, we learned that the word addiction comes from the Latin word adicere, which means to be devoted to, to sacrifice for. To be an addict is to worship the thing you're addicted to. And so it's no wonder that what God asks of us is repentance. Because repentance is not primarily a change of behavior. It's not primarily putting down the bottle or turning off the screen or giving up your addiction to your financial portfolio. It is that too, yes. It is behavior modification. But first and foremost, Repentance is a change of worship. To leave the worship of something that is not God, something like success or comfort, security or prosperity, money or sex, materialism, earthly relationships. And these are idols found too often in the church, aren't they? And it's to turn. Repentance is to turn, to truly worship and submit to God as king. Dear Christian, have you done that today? I want to ask you today to think about what else might you need to lay down at the feet of Christ?
Or what other issues might you need to go to him and say, Lord, I bow the knee? You see, at the end of the song in verse 43, there is a statement. If you go back there with me, go back to Deuteronomy 32 and look at verse 43. There is a statement that says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. That even these divine beings, these demonic false gods will one day bow. And again, that is not in some of your translations for the same reason the other verse was altered. The scribes did not want to confuse the idea of monotheism or tempt the Jews to polytheism. But remember how we said right at the beginning, how I said right at the beginning that the form of the song as poetry was important to remember? We know that this line in verse 43 in the ESV about the gods bowing down needs to be there because it is the parallel poetic statement to the first line. To remove it, is like saying, roses are red. You know you want to say it. Go ahead. Yeah, you have to. It's not just OCD. We have to say it. That's how it goes. Well, this prose and poetry requires that statement. If you remove it, it's roses are red, dot, dot, dot. It was of the utmost importance for Moses to clearly state that even the divine beings would bow to the ultimate God. These are beings that could kill entire armies in the Old Testament. And yet God is so powerful and so mighty and yet so personal and so loving that angels will bow down to him and yet he calls us his children. To fully grasp this will blow our minds and give us huge context when we read Paul's words to the church at Philippi. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, speaking of Jesus, he says to the church there, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Guys, this is the God that even the lowercase g gods will bow down to. He loved you so much that he was willing to give this up and bow down to humanity to come to us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, the God of the universe, the king of the universe, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, the incarnate Jesus, and bestowed on him, notice this, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul was making the amazing claim that in Jesus, all the covenant promises of Yahweh were fulfilled to his people because Jesus is the incarnate Yahweh. In Jesus, God became man and gave his life on a cross so that he would pay the price for our sins so that we might be reconciled to him. And because of this act of ultimate selfless love, Jesus has been raised and enthroned and will one day return as King of kings and Lord of lords. To be a Christian is not just to plead the blood of Jesus to gain eternal life. It is certainly that. But it is not only that. It is also to bow the knee to his reign over and in your life and mine every moment of every day. 
And so as we go to the table of communion and as we sing to him, I want to prepare us by reading from Psalm 95. And I don't want you to turn there. I want you to simply hear what is stated in Psalm 95 because it echoes this same sentiment so well. I want you to merely close your eyes and listen, and I want you to let Psalm 95 permeate your being so that in this time of response, as we go through uh, communion and worship and giving of our tithes and tributes to our King, but also as we go through this week, I want us to ask ourselves the question, have we bowed before the rock of our salvation? Have we bowed our lives in humility and submission to Jesus our King? When we are confronted with the cosmic history of God's gracious election, redemption, and gift of restoration, we truly have no other appropriate response than to give our very lives over to him wholly and completely. Amen? If you want to do that today, if you've never done that today, we're going to have elders in the back available during the break to, or during worship to pray with you and talk with you. If you're a Christian who knows today, right now, you're feeling that conviction of, I know what I need to bow before the Lord. They're also going to be back there to pray with you and give you more application of what that looks like in your life. They would love to do that today. And so go to them during the time of worship. But let's hear from Psalm 95 as we begin our time of worship. Worship team, you can come on up as I'm reading this. Psalm 95, verse 1, it says this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with the songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let's worship our king as he deserves now, in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me?
God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven.